Hello, and welcome back to the Grace Downtown podcast. I'm Rick Barry. I'm one of the staff members here at Grace Downtown. This week, we're bringing you a sermon Glenn preached in March of 2011 called The Compassion of the Servant. My wife and I recently went back and re-listened to this one because it's actually the sermon Glenn preached the night we met. We're disgusting, I know. But we were both really moved and encouraged by it, so I'm looking forward to sharing it with you all again. If there's a sermon or a talk from back in the past that you'd like to hear again, drop me an email at rick at gracedc.net, and I'll try to dig it up to broadcast it here. Now, here's Glenn. Her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me as we pray. Father, here we are gathered, um, some of us feeling strong in our faith, some of us hanging on, some of us doubting, others of us know uh, we're up in the air about who you are. And yet you've gathered us all in one place and we all share something in common. You have spoken to us. You've laid this word before us that's lived for thousands of years and you've addressed each one of our hearts. And we pray that we would hear that, and I pray that my words would enhance it and not detract from it. And we ask this and trust in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for the next several weeks, we'll be spending time in the prophecy of Isaiah, which is found in the Old Testament, or what is called the Hebrew Scriptures. Isaiah was a prophet in the 8th century, and he spoke to Israel at a time when it was divided, literally so. The nation had split into two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom that retained the name Israel, and a southern kingdom, which went by the name of Judah. And Isaiah was sent as a messenger to that southern kingdom. But Israel was not only divided at that time, It was threatened. It was threatened from external factors. The great superpowers of Babylon and Assyria were just at its doorstep. And though God was saying to Israel, I want you to trust in me, 
her kings would forge unwise alliances that always backfired. A lot of political drama, much like what we see today. But it was more than the outside or external factors that really threatened Israel. They paled in comparison to the internal threats. At this point, the community is at a low point spiritually and morally before God. Many people have abandoned their faith. They're worshiping wooden gods. Injustice is running rampant through the land. And so God, after years of pleading and years of warning, has to engage in what some people have called severe mercy, discipline upon His people. And He sends the prophet Isaiah to declare to Israel that in the future... Uh, they will be conquered by Babylon and carried into exile, and that's exactly what happens in 588, just as God said it would. You know, there are some shaping events in our lives that are joyful. Maybe a great game we won, an achievement we had, uh, a grandchild is born. There are other shaping events in our lives that are painful. They come from suffering. Maybe it's because of death. Israel... Uh, would feel about the exile in a way that perhaps they felt about no other thing. There were lots of shaping events in the life of Israel. You had the call of Abraham. You had the exodus. You had the kingdom of David. But all through the prophets, something you found written about over and over and over was the exile. The impact it had upon the community psychologically, spiritually, politically was overwhelming to them. You can read a bit about the heart felt first narrative, first-hand report of it, in Lamentations chapter 3, or all the book of Lamentations, which was a view of them going through this Babylonian captivity. But God brings them through them not only as a sign and remembrance of the consequences of running from God, but of God's faithfulness. Because as the New Testament teaches, where sin increases, grace increases all the more. And it's almost before Isaiah can get the lips out of it, the words out of his mouth about the judgment and discipline, he begins to talk about a time where God will restore and forgive and renew his community, Israel. And all of these great promises, all of these wonderful claims hinge on a figure called the servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord. Now, I want you to imagine that um, you have a friend that visits you in town and they want to see the monuments and you, as a dutiful friend, want to record the moment and so you decide you're going to take a picture and you stand back and as you're planning to take the picture in front of one of the monuments, the first thing you see in your lens, of course, is just a big group of people and then you zoom in a little bit more and then there's a smaller group around them and then you zoom in a little bit more and maybe it falls in the person right to the right of them, then you zoom in more and you got them in your sights. Well, that's sort of how the servant of the Lord unfolds in the book of Isaiah. Sometimes the nation Israel, all of it is referred to as the servant of the Lord. But then it zooms in a little bit more and we see the servant of the Lord is a faithful remnant, a faithful group within Israel. And then it zooms in a little bit more and it lands on a most surprising place, a pagan king named Cyrus. That God will use a pagan, unbelieving king to to bring his people back into the promised land. But finally it rests on one of whom such marvelous things are said, it couldn't be the other three groups. It rests on one who is said to be the chosen one of God, the royal king, the holy prophet, 
the suffering priest, one who will bring Israel out of its captivity, out of its guilt, and who will have a ministry not only to Israel, to the entire world. And so as we focus in on the lens and it zooms in on the face, we realize who we're looking at is Jesus Christ. This is the fulfillment of the servant of the Lord. And so as we spend these weeks in Isaiah moving up to Easter, we're really unpacking a picture, a a prophetic picture of Jesus Christ before us. And the first thing that we see is a servant of compassion. A servant of compassion. And that's what I want to look at this evening together. The first thing we see about this servant of compassion is that he brings custom-fitted compassion. Custom-fitted compassion. Now, you know, if you have something custom-fitted to you, whether it's a pair of shoes or whether it's a hat or a dress or a suit, it's, it's an article of clothing that knows you. I mean, it, it was made with you in mind, unique in design. And that's what you find about God's compassion in this passage. First of all, it knows where to find us. It knows where to find us. You notice here that the setting for the comfort isn't the land flowing with milk and honey, so to speak. It's not a resort. Rather, the comfort comes in the desert wilderness. A voice cries in the wilderness. The Lord comes into a place that is rough and rocky. And that is a picture of the state of Israel. It's one that Isaiah uses. That Israel has become like a barren wasteland. It has become a place that uh, has been just strewn apart, burned out, wasted. And maybe uh, that resonates with you right now. You feel like a wilderness wasteland. But it's into this very place that we're told in chapter 35 that the compassion of God begins to flow. Listen to this. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. For waters break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert, and the thirsty ground springs of water. See what's being said here. The compassion of God turns a desert into an oasis. It turns a desert into a garden. And I want you to notice that that compassion finds them there. It's not the opposite God doesn't say to them, listen, I have this great timeshare. I have this wonderful place, this oasis, this promised land. If you could only just get out of the desert, if you could only just get your act together and move out of it, man, I could really give it to you. It's not at all what happens, is it? The compassion finds them. You may be in the desert of your career, You may be in the desert of your broken relationship. You may be in the desert of your ailing physical body. You may be in the desert of your sin and struggle. And you are not too lost for God to find you. God is an expert tracker. His compassion seeks people out where they are, not where they should be or where they wish they would be. It comes to find them in the desert, in the broken places. How encouraging. So it knows where we are, this compassion, but it also knows how much we can take. How much we can take. Now he says this outright as he says to the people 
And this is wonderful. It's a prediction. So already he's saying, I know what you're going to go through. In these words, your hard service is over. Your heart, your warfare has ended. What he's saying to Israel is, even before you get there, I want you to know there will be an end point to it. There will be an end point. And sometimes uh, my wife will say to uh, uh, moms or couples that have just had infants, it gets better. You know, it gets better. You know, the exhaustion, the bleary-eyedness, the, or, you know, even as they're growing, at one point they'll be able to find their shoes and put them on and actually tie their laces. It'll get better. There will be an end point. And God goes ahead and says to Israel, there will be an end point. It's a good thing because one of the voices that haunts you and I when we're in the, in the barren wasteland in the desert is, when is this going to end? When will it end? I so appreciated Bob's prayer. It's the voice of the Scripture. It's the voice of the Spirit of God that gives us permission to go, when will it end? <laughs> when will it? And we get this picture of a shepherd that reminds us that we're not lost to that question. What does it say here? He's the shepherd that tends his flock. That means he's zoned in on the flock. The shepherd is zoned in on us. And then it says the shepherd will gather. That means he, he realizes when someone's getting a little bit far out, when someone's starting to wander a little bit, he knows that there's wolves out there, so he brings them back into the fold. Maybe it's back into the community that you've come. And then the shepherd does one other thing. It says he carries the sheep. That means he knows who the young ones are. And he knows who the weak ones are. And there's this promise that he won't drive them harder than they can bear. And that deals with the other voice that you and I hear in the landscape of the wilderness. And that is, this is too much for me. I can't take this anymore. And it's in that place that the compassion of God enables us to endure something that we could have never imagined we can. <laughs> we're one side of our mouth, we're crying out the prayer that we just prayed as a, prayed as a congregation. When will it end? And the compassion of God is enabling us to stand. And we have to be careful in that place. It's a very delicate place. A place where we bring our authentic, raw heart to God, but also that we stop short of allowing complaint become a character assessment on God. Where essentially we'd say, you don't know how much I can take. And you don't know how much I can bear. Because the character of God forbids that. He could never, he could never treat his children that way. I was just saying to a friend of mine out in the hall that one of the thoughts I've had this week is that God will not keep his children in the furnace one second more than he has to. Whatever he's doing in your life to shape you to become like Jesus, he won't keep you in there one second more than he has to. He's like a father that has to discipline a child, but immediately they're wanting to comfort the child. This is what he's like. And we're told that he won't break a bruised reed and he won't snuff out the flickering flame. We're told that no temptation will bear against us that we can't get through. And of course we hear it through the mouth of the servant of the Lord, the shepherd, who says, all of you who are weary and laden, I want you to come to me and I'll give you a rest because the burden of mine isn't heavy, and my yoke is light. 
the thing that feels like change to you, it's actually light. I, I, I mentioned a couple of you uh, a couple months ago to you that I took this, you know, bike trip with my daughter, and it was this 150-mile bike trip. And uh, one of my revelations after that bike trip, because half the time I was delusional, I had I had lots of visions on this bike trip. But one of my after visions was, you know, I'm actually capable of doing more than I thought. I'm actually capable of doing more than getting out of my rocking chair and getting back into it. I actually can do a little bit more than just walk to work and back. And this is what the compassion of God enables us to do. On one hand, we're going, this is too much, God. And then his compassion runs in and we realize, I can walk another step. I can go another step. But God knows not only where we are, and he knows how much we can take, but this is the real thing. He knows the greatest burden that we would face. There is nothing heavier, and whatever you're facing in this room, I can guarantee you this, there is nothing heavier to bear than the guilt of legitimate sin. There's nothing that saps your strength more than that. Because it gets you from the inside, and it gets your conscience, and it just takes it all out of you. And this is really what would be dogging Israel in this place. And so God goes right for it with his compassion. He goes right to it, because he knows it needs the very thing. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem that their iniquity has been pardoned. They've received from the Lord's hand double for their sin. Now we read that and go, what in the world's going on there? I thought God was supposed to be fair. What, he's punishing them double for what they did wrong? Well, immediately that question would give us a clue. That's probably not what it means. That, God's fair, that our fairness would be above God's. But there's also hints in the text itself. There's clues in the text itself that help us understand what it is. First of all, when that verb pardon and is accepted is used, when that particular verb is used in the Bible, it always means blood it refers to blood sacrifice for sin. Blood sacrifice for sin. And so you need to ask, whose blood? Because God certainly didn't require Israel to shed its blood. It's somebody else's blood. It's the blood of the servant. We'll look at Isaiah 53 in a couple weeks, and we'll see that it's the servant's blood. It's Jesus in his ministry as we move toward Easter. It's Jesus that walks into the wasteland. You can't read the suffering of Jesus and not see this. It's Jesus that is put out of the city gate when he's crucified. What does that mean? You're outside. You're outside of the community. It's Jesus that walks the steps to the scaffold that you and I ought to be on because of our legitimate guilt. And it's Jesus that puts the noose around his neck, and it's Jesus that stands in there so you and I can be pardoned and forgiven. It's the only religion on earth that gives you that. It's the only religion on earth that takes your iniquity seriously. I mean, come on. You're going to work off your iniquity? That's not taking it seriously. You're going to pretend like it doesn't exist and we're too modern and sophisticated to exist? Your soul knows better than that. You need a gospel that says that God, the judge of the earth, takes your iniquity upon himself because he loves you that much. That's behind every good story that you love, every good song that you love, every good movie that you love. It's the story behind the story. That's it. This is what God does. He goes for it. It's the servant's blood. And we're told the provision doesn't come from human hands. It comes from the Lord's hand. 
But lastly, we have this reference to double. And literally in the Hebrew, what it's saying is two sides. Two sides of something. And it either means this, that God is matching the side of sin with just enough grace to handle it, or it means that He's giving double grace. So when He says to Israel, you have received double, meaning I will give you double grace for your iniquity. And this is consistent with what we find in the New Testament because when grace is talked about, what are some of the words that are used? Lavish grace. Abundant grace. And what that means, friends, is the compassionate grace of God is strong enough to deal with every sin collected in this room tonight. It is up to the task of comforting every single thing in this room that you and I bring together and bear as a mini-community together. It can comfort the noisiest conscience here tonight because it's up to the task. The question you and I have, actually, is will we receive the comfort? That's where the real rub is. It's not will God comfort? Will we receive it? You know, sometimes we use this language and say, uh, this person refuses to be comforted. Does that describe you? Where you really won't let God comfort you. That instead you put yourself on emotional probation. That you instead sort of make atonement. So after you screw up, you kind of do some good things for God and then you make your way to his comfort. Are you someone that refuses to be comforted by the grace of God? Jesus says, blessed are those that mourn for they shall be comforted. And the truth is, all of us are like that. That's why we practice every week. Maybe you were wondering, what do you mean? We practice every week. It's during the confession and pardon. We own up to where we need the comfort of God, and then someone declares it, and we sit down. No, we don't sit down. Today we said, we receive your great mercy. And I have to confess to you, many times I just sort of run through that. And because I knew I was going to bring it up today, I thought I'd really pay attention. And it reminded me of what I already know. That when I actually receive it and I go, I receive your great mercy, I feel differently. Do you feel differently? That'll be the sign you know that the compassion of God is really comforting you. Every week we're learning it together. But it leads to the second thing. The servant brings custom-fit compassion, but he brings heartfelt compassion. Notice where God aims his compassion, straight at the heart. First of all, we see it in what he says. You see these words, comfort, comfort my people. And, you know, it's, it, it's an imperfect verb, and the reason I tell you that is because it means continually comfort. So what God is saying there is, I don't want you to stop saying comfort to my people. Through many prophets in many ways, I want you to keep saying to them, comfort, comfort, comfort. Why do we repeat things like that to people? Because we want them to know it deep in their heart. God wants people to know deep in their heart his compassion, so he keeps saying, comfort, comfort to my people. We see it in what he says. We see it in the way that he says it. He says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Literally, speak straight to her heart. And you find that same language in the book of Ruth, but you find it in the, in the book of Hosea. And if you know that prophet, he takes this metaphor of Israel as an unfaithful wife. An unfaithful wife. And to that unfaithful wife, this is what God says. God says, I will bring her out into the wilderness 
and I will speak tenderly to her. I will take her out into the wilderness, and I would woo her. And, and I thought to myself, that is really odd. I don't know about you, but I tend to think when I'm in the wilderness, either struggling with sin or suffering, I tend to think that God has led me out there to uh, condemn me and basically kill me and do me in. That's what we tend to think in that time. That's what we battle with. God has brought me here to actually speak words that you haven't done well enough, you've screwed up, and I'm really out to get you. But we're told he brings them into the wilderness to speak comforting woos and woo her back to himself. Could you imagine right now your wilderness to be the very place where God will speak compassion to you like he's never spoken to it before? Could you imagine this being that place? That's what we're being told here. That's where he speaks the words of love. And it's just staggering to me. I mean, who do we try to woo that way? Well, we try to woo someone that we're hoping, that we're infatuated with and hoping will come to us, or someone we have to make up to. But here you find God is the innocent party, and yet he speaks to Israel as if he's infatuated with her and he wants to woo her back to himself. It's really a tremendous picture of God. Luke 7 is a wonderful example of that, where Jesus speaks tenderly to a woman that walks into a, a lunch with a bunch of religious people that scorn her. And you ought to read it. She touches him. He speaks kind words. He woos her to himself. So it's not only in what he says, the way he says it, but lastly from where he says it. And this is the picture of the shepherd. It says that he holds them close to his heart. Who do you hold close to your heart? Think about that. Maybe it's a niece. Maybe it's your cat. You know, maybe it's uh, a grandparent. Maybe it's someone uh, you know, you're dating. Maybe it's the person that you're married to. Who do you hold close to your heart? Because what it's saying is that God holds us that way. This is what Isaiah is saying here. We hold close to our heart the people that we care for the most and love the most. And the compassion of God leads him to do the same. What I'm trying to say is, are you starting to get a sense of the heart of God for you? More so, is God, in, is God getting through to your heart? Is the compassion of God getting through to your heart? I don't mean to you acknowledge it up here and go, yes, I understand the compassion of God. Yes, I can relate to it. I'm asking you, do you feel the compassion of God in your heart? Does it touch you there? Oh, I pray that none of us, that our life story will be an unfulfilled love story. Let that not be you. For you will have spurned the love of God in your life. The compassion of God. Will you open your heart to the compassion of God tonight, now? Will you do it? That you would know what it means to have a fulfilled love story with Him. It's a heartfelt compassion. But lastly, it's a mountain-moving compassion. Mountain-moving, unstoppable. Now, a couple weeks ago, I mentioned that Motown classic, Ain't No Mountain. Ain't No Mountain Too High Enough. Now, does anybody know who first, who first cut that song? Who first recorded that song? Who cut it? It's a trick question. God did! God did! It's right here! Ain't no mountain too high enough. I think I'm saying that wrong. 
And I love that song, and I'm embarrassing myself. Because you think that I don't know it, but I love it, and I know it. Am I saying that right, Russ? That's right, ain't no mountain high enough. Okay. There's my music righteousness coming through. I want you to know that I know. The point is that God cut the song. It's right here. Isaiah wrote it. He will move the mountains. He will smooth out the rough places. You know, the picture being given here is the picture of, uh, you know, like a great dignitary coming to town. Or in, in those days, uh, they would bring their idol gods on their shoulders and walk them and process them. You know, you, you can imagine after the inauguration, there's that great procession that goes down Pennsylvania Avenue. Could you imagine that thing not moving forward because there were, you know, cars in the middle of the road or great potholes? Of course it wouldn't happen. Why? Because the person coming through is too majestic and too powerful. Saying the same thing here, that nothing will stop God it will be smoothed out. It will be brought down. It will be a highway of God. Why? Because God will get to his people. God will not fail to come to his people. That's what he's saying there. There will be no obstacle, including your stony heart. Including your hard, stony heart, just like mine. The obstacles that are removed. You heard it in the New Testament reading where John the Baptist talks about preparing the heart for God. God can take out a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. He has that sort of power. I would ask you, do you give too much credit to your sin? Do you think that your sin is stronger than God's grace? Because if you do, you need to flip that. Because here we find God removing every obstacle so he can get to his people. And the, white, you know, and, the, and the reason we're convinced by it is because he's got a strong arm. This is the debut of that phrase that you find in the Bible, the strong arm of God. And literally what it means is God is rolling up his sleeves to start to do work. God is rolling up his sleeve to deliver and save his people. And this is what he does with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, God-man, is God coming to earth rolling up his sleeves. And he's going to that place that we read about. He's opening the eyes of the blind. He's with the poor. He's healing those that are lowly. Jesus enters the wasteland with his strong arm and he begins to do work in the lives of people. He's still doing that work today. His Spirit is working that same work today. And the outcome is nothing short of glorious. It says the glory of God will be revealed and everybody will see it. Listen, the fact that this community exists, this community of hard-hearted and hard-headed people exists as a testimony to the grace of God. It's a testimony to the strong arm of God that this community even exists in light of who we are. And it's a testimony, evidence of victory. In verse 10 you see that. That word recompense and reward are the same thing. And what it means is to the victor goes the spoils. To the victor goes the spoils. Now, what's surprising is about the spoils. What are they? It says that his recompense is with him. Well, who's with him? His people are with him. The people are the reward. <laughs> Surprise of surprises. These foolish, wayward, lost people are the reward of the king. That was Jesus' big reward for going through hell. You, me, and everybody that would turn to him. And so if you are someone that professes to be a follower of Jesus, you need to stop seeing yourself as a reject and you need to stop seeing yourself as God's reward. And I'm not saying that just because, you know, I want you to feel good. I can, hardly, I can barely say it to myself. It's what it says here. 
The people of God are His reward. And how can that be? It's the bewildering, unconditional compassion of God. That's why. That's why. But unstoppable compassion has demands. And let me mention two before we wrap up. The unstoppable compassion of God demands a response. The first thing is, is that you and I would be on the lookout for God's compassion. Actively on the lookout. What are you looking out for right now? Is it somebody maybe to connect with romantically in the room? Is it a job? Is it the weather for the next weekend so you can escape? What are you looking out for? Because what we're told here, this is wonderful, into this wasteland someone says, Behold, I see him! That's what he says. Behold the Lord! It reminds me of that wonderful scene at the end of uh, the film version of Lord of the Rings, the Battle of Helm's Deep. And if you see that, you know, it's just, in Gandalf, before the thing even starts, says, to Aragon, I want you to look for me on the fifth day, morning light, look to the east. And he just says it sort of as a casual comment. And then you get into the death and destruction, those orcs and, you know, all this stuff going on, and the darkness, and then you move into the inner ring where they're just getting defeated, and Aragorn, you know, says to the king Theoden, uh, or Theoden says, there, let's ride out in glory. And you just feel like it's totally despondent, and you're wondering what's going to happen, and they make their way down, and all of a sudden, up on the hill, oh, it's the fifth day. There's the light. This light just comes crashing down. <laughs> Turns the tide. They should have been looking. Are you looking for the compassion of God? I mean, really looking for it. If you're looking for it not to be there, I promise you one thing, you'll see it all the time. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Expect God to be compassionate to you this week. Expect it in little ways. Read the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. You know, he's just going farther and farther and farther down the toilet. I mean, good night. You know, first he's a slave, and then he's accused, and then he's going farther and farther down. And you find this refrain through that story, but the Lord was with Joseph. There were these little victories. Little victories. Look for the compassion of God this week. Maybe it's someone that's kind to you at work. Maybe it's the fact that, you know, you find a parking space. I don't know what it is. But you and I are to be looked. But the second thing is this. We're not only to look, but we're to believe. We're to believe. He says, go up to the highest mountain. Why does he say go up to the highest mountain? I want you to declare it and not be ashamed because it's for sure news. It's going to happen. I don't want you to say it down here because it's not going to happen. I want you to go to the highest mountain and I want you to declare the good tidings that the Lord has come because the word of the Lord has made it sure and has made it firm. He's saying, I want you to trust it because it's been confirmed. And it's not only just for you and me because it says that the news will be spread to Jerusalem and to the surrounding cities. It's the compassion of God for our city and the world that God has made. You and I must believe and trust that the compassion of God is for sure. Why? Because Jesus came and he rose from the dead. It's settled. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The compassion of God was written and the receipt was made and he said here, is it for real? It's for real. And so you and I begin to walk in this compassion 
and we see the servant and the Lord in a way that we've never had before. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your compassion, uh, your love, your victory. Thank you for what Isaiah saw. Thank you for what we see in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Would you give us vision? In Christ's name, amen.